Here's a four-letter word that's been in the news and education articles a fair amount over the past years. The word is grit, and it's something that Paul Tuff, the author of How Children Succeed and Whatever It Takes, addresses in his most recent book, Helping Children Succeed, What Works and Why. Tuff is a frequent commentator on school reform, low-income communities, parenting, and politics. But in this particular book, he takes on the concept of grit and asks a crucial question. Is grit something that can be taught in the classroom? Now, unfortunately, we don't have time to go through the entire book with you. Otherwise, we'd be here for another five hours. But we do have something else. A few weeks ago, Paul Tuff made his way to the New Schools Venture Fund Summit in California, and Ed Surge's own Tony Wan got the chance to sit down with him to get the story behind the book and what it'll really take to help children succeed, whether grit can be taught or not. All that and more is coming at you right now. I'm Mary Jo Matta. And I'm Blake Montgomery. Welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast. Let's get started. The Google I.O. conference last week offered a slew of announcements for the EDU community. First up, a new classroom API feature for better coursework and gradebook integration. And then there's this ground-shaking update. Android apps will now operate on Chromebooks. The search giant also released several science-oriented tools for classrooms. Here's one example, an interactive data visualization of forest loss for budding ecologists. Curriculate is closing shop. In an email sent to users on May 24th, the San Francisco-based startup announced it will shut down its digital reading platform on June 17th. The move comes just months after the company changed its pricing model and offerings. We spoke with co-founder and CEO Jason Singer to learn more about the reason behind the decision. Check it out at edsearch.com. Many of the iPads that Maine purchased for students may now be returned, reports the Lewiston-Auburn Sun-Journal. The State Education Department and Apple are offering schools the opportunity to swap their iPads for Apple laptops at no additional cost. The telling statistic? A district survey found that 88.5% of teachers and 74% of students in grades 7 through 12 preferred laptops to iPads. We just launched our latest EdSurge guide, What's Next for Maker Education. Like any good makerspace, it's chock full of tools, resources, ideas, and inspiration on how to build a lot with a little, as well as plenty of big questions about the meaning of making. We're painting a full picture of the movement with photos, data, interviews, stories, and opinions. What will you make of it all? You can join the conversation at hashtag EdSurgeChat on June 7th at 5 p.m. Pacific. And here are some highlights from the guide. MakerBus co-founder Ryan Hunt showed us how to stock a makerspace for just $100. And if you've got empty pockets, he's also got a supply list with a price tag of zero. This year's flagship Maker Fair boasted not one, but two events aimed at maker educators. We went to both and asked, what did educators learn at Maker Fair? I also went to the Brightworks School in San Francisco to find out what a maker school actually looks like. Jessica Parker of MakerEd helped design the first ever Maker Certificate program, which includes many courses that combine hands-on learning with documentation, feedback, and deep reflection. She's compiled a starter list on our guide's main page. Educator Suzette Duncan wants to shape a maker movement that reflects the diversity of people who build, hack, and tinker. 
She outlines three ways making can embrace girls, women, and people of color by giving some love to non-STEM making and maker role models. Check out the full piece on edsearch.com. And now it's time for Kachings. U.S. EdTech companies announced $74 million in venture funding during the month of April, according to our Kaching analysis. Class Dojo led the way with $21 million, followed by EdCast at $16 million, and Got It at $9 million. For comparison, the industry saw $51.5 million raised by U.S. EdTech startups in March of 2016 and $35.4 million way back in April of 2015. Next up, there are Hunger Games for Computer Science, seriously. 42 University, a new coding academy in Silicon Valley, is free and wants to educate 10,000 students within the next five years. It's the latest project from billionaire Xavier Neal, who started 42 in France and is investing $100 million in the school. To enroll, applicants must survive an intensive four-week coding and logic challenge. May the odds be ever in their favor. So Blake, when you hear the word grit, what do you think of? Sand. Hollywood reboots. Okay, that's fantastic. Um, The higher ed definition is a little bit different. According to Angela Duckworth, the professor at the University of Pennsylvania who's also a MacArthur Fellowship recipient, grit is the tendency to sustain interest in and effort towards very long-term goals. The words persistence or tenacity may come to mind in conjunction with grit. Okay, so not teeth. Not gritted teeth. I would say that that's accurate, yes. Oh, so yes, gritted teeth. (laughs) Anyways, moving along. Okay, so for years, Duckworth's grit concept has received both positive and negative feedback. Most recently, the concept of whether grit can be taught in the classroom has come into discussion. So the writer Paul Tuff that we mentioned before, he's got some very strong thoughts about that, as well as around how adults can and should help students succeed. Tony Wan got all the deets, so let's get to the interview. Well, I am here with uh, Paul Tuff. Uh, welcome to Burlingame for the New School's 2016 uh, Summit. Thank you. Great to be here. I know that you recently uh, wrote a book called Helping Children Su- Succeed that is a follow-up to a previous book with a very similar title, which is called How Children Succeed. What's kind of the difference or the transition between the two? How do you go from how to, to helping? So the, the difference is that this new book, Helping Children Succeed, is designed to be a more uh, sort of practical, concrete guidebook for um, educators uh, and others who are working directly with kids who are growing up in adversity, by which I mean poverty, but other forms of adversity as well. And these are subjects that I talked about in my 2012 book, How Children Succeed. But what I discovered after I wrote that book is that when I would, when I would talk to groups of um, educators or, you know, Head Start workers or pediatricians, people who are working directly with kids who had grown up in difficult circumstances, they, the question they had for me is like, this is interesting information, but what do we do? You know, what do we do with this information? And so that's the idea behind helping children succeed. It's to, to provide some real answers for the folks whose job it is to help um, kids every day who are growing up in difficult mm-hmm. circumstances. Right. And in the book, I noticed that um, there's a good part of it that talks about these uh, character traits that... Um, like grit or persistence, uh, these these words that are 
finding a way to the headlines these days. Yes. And you have thoughts about, you know, whether or not these are skills that can be taught, like the way that we teach algebra or other subject matters. What's your kind of share a little bit about your observations on this idea of grit? Sure. So um, again, the last book, How Children Succeed, was very much about this this set of capacities, non-cognitive skills or character strengths. Um, and explored them in lots of different ways in that book. And, and in, in uh, sort of revisiting this research and trying to push it further and looking for more sort of concrete uh, solutions for educators and others, uh, I really rethought a lot of what I, what I believed about these non-cognitive skills. And, and part of what I believed is that, that thinking about them as skills to be taught the way we would teach um, you know, math or reading or anything else it is actually not the most effective way to think about them. There's not a lot of evidence that we know how to teach these skills. That that, that simple, um, you know, giving kids like curiosity worksheets and written lectures <laughs> that that really helps them develop these skills. And instead, it seems like these qualities are very much the product of children's environments, uh, both in the home and at school. And so, if we want to help kids develop in these um, character dimensions, that, that there's evidence that are so important. What we need to do is to think about how to change their environment, both their environment at home and their environment in the classroom. What if, um, just playing a little devil's advocate, what if you're a kid who is relatively well off and have a um, you know, more cushier environment? I mean, what are some of the ways that you can provide an environment where a kid from, from this stature can um, you know, learn, develop some of these grit or persistence skills? Well, one of the things that I, that I uh, talked about in How Children Succeed what was that a lot of kids who are growing up in relative privilege um, are, are actually hampered in developing these non-cognitive mm -hmm. capacities like grit and self-control because they don't face real challenges. Um, and, and the evidence suggests that that's part of what is important in your environment is a sense of challenge, something to push against. Um, and ideally, an adult to help guide you through those challenges, not to complete those challenges for you, um, but to, to, to calibrate the level of challenge so that you're dealing with real failure, dealing with real adversity, um, but that you have uh, support to make it through those. Mm -hmm. One of the big themes at this uh, conference here today is this idea of uh, promoting equity uh, in terms of making sure that kids from different um, you know, backgrounds uh, have uh, equal access to educational opportunities. Um, do these, uh, you know, do these words like equity and diversity kind of play a role in the work that you've done? Yeah, absolutely. So helping children succeed is all about kids who are growing up in poverty, and, and it is trying to take on this, you know, very real issue that those kids are not succeeding. The, the a lot of the reforms over the last twenty years um, that were designed to close the gaps between low-income kids and other kid, kids have not succeeded in closing those gaps at all. Uh, so what I'm arguing for in helping children mm -hmm. succeed is a real sea change in how we think about um, those children and their lives and what kind of interventions right. they need to succeed. Can you, give, can you share one kind of example of where a uh, more an effort to promote equity in education has fallen short, uh, or perhaps one of the biggest misconceptions that people have? about making education opportunities equ uh, equitable? Sure, I mean, I, I, think, I think one place is just thinking about it in terms of, of opportunity, that, that, that our responsibility for uh, kids who are growing up in poverty ends if we just give them options. Um, and, and in the long term, that is what we want, right? We want kids to have all the opportunities that, that, that any other kid has. But the reality is, you know, a lot of what I write about in Helping Children Succeed is the research in neuroscience about how growing up in uh, difficult circumstances uh, affects the development of our stress response system and how that changes um, kids in, in a lot of the ways that, that, that look like character in terms mm -hmm. of their um, 
their resilience, their self-control, their perseverance. Mm -hmm. And so for those kids to simply like give them opportunities, say, okay, here are your, here are your choices, uh, that's not enough. That those kids need more help. They need it earlier on in life before, right. before kindergarten begins. Uh, but they need a different kind of environment in the classroom as well. One that will uh, give them the right kind of support and challenge uh, to help them be able to make those choices in the right kind of way. There are also, you know, a good number of technologists represented uh, amongst the audience today, and I'm curious about whether you have some thoughts about the role of technology in, you know, driving, um, you know, driving some of the sea change that you just talked about. I think uh, I think technology is and will is really important in education, and will continue to be even more important. That said, I, I do have some concerns about the, the role of technology in the education of low-income kids, and particularly um, in the development of these kinds of skills. Because what, what the research suggests is that if we want to help uh, young people develop these capacities, they need a lot of close face-to-face -face interaction, that a lot of what helps develop these skills is, is feeling a sense of belonging, feeling a sense of connection. And, and technology is not the best tool we have for doing those things. I, you know, I think, I think it can help. I think it can certainly help to educate teachers and give them the kind of support and community that they need. Um, but I get nervous about the idea that, that you know, someone's going to come up with a, a grit app that they just yeah. say, well, if every kid just does this for 10 minutes a day, that's going to solve their problems. Because I think, uh, I think it's a bigger challenge than that. Um, I think technologists should be involved in trying to solve that challenge. Uh, but I think we need to be on guard for quick fixes as well. And what's the one, what would you say is the one major uh, takeaway or tip from your book that you think applies to, can apply to the, uh, the philanthropists, the CEOs, the teachers, and the students who are uh, at this conference today? Is there kind of one unifying kind of tip or thread? Yeah, I mean, I think the thread that, that holds together the research in helping children succeed is that we need to think in different ways about the environments in which children are growing up. And so rather than make this sort of distinction between um, schools and homes uh, and, and try to parse the different skills that kids need, the big change that we need to do if we're, if we're going to try and help kids who are growing up in adversity to succeed is think about their environment all the way through their childhood. So that begins um, at birth, it certainly goes through early childhood, but it continues in the classroom as well. We need to create environments around kids that give them a sense of belonging, a sense mm -hmm. of challenge, a sense of opportunity, a sense that they can um, improve themselves and mm -hmm. can grow. And that's, that's, a, that's a complicated thing to do. You know, it takes a different kind of teaching, it takes a different kind of intervention, um, but I think that's a conversation we've got to start and we've got to push forward. Right, so it sounds like it's much broader than just focusing on what a particular one individual teacher or a student needs to do better. It's more about, when you talk about the environment, there's you know, families or community organizations, government or mm -hmm. you know, clubs, you know, all of this stuff. Yeah, but I, I, I totally agree that I, think, that I think it's not enough to just say, here, teachers, you solve this problem. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I think part of the message in the book for teachers is that there's a lot that, that any individual teacher can do as well. And one of the things that the research suggests is that there are certain teachers who are able to create in their classroom um, the kind of environment that helps kids succeed. And we're still figuring out exactly how they do that. Sometimes it's, you know, it's through the specific messages that they give kids, through the way they talk to them, the kind of homework they uh, assign, the, the way they teach math or history in the classroom. Um, 
But we know that it makes a huge difference in terms of how motivated kids feel, how connected they feel, how willing they are to, to work hard. Um, and so, so, so while you know, I don't want to let the, the, the broader community off the hook by saying it's all on teachers, I also don't want to do the opposite and yes. say to teachers, well, you just wait until we solve all these big social problems and then we'll tell you what to do. I think right now teachers can take away from this book um, some, some, some very specific ideas about how they can start to change uh, the environment in their classroom that changes the way that kids feel about being there every day. Great. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for taking the time to drop by for an interview. Thank you. Great. So we're going to do our um, kind of final question. Um, of, I'm going to try to shoot it a little bit differently. Okay. So I'm just going to stand behind the camera, and I think Molly will kind of... Yeah. Adjust you. Adjust it. Okay. Uh, cool. Do you want me to look at you or at the camera? So uh, I'm going to move you to be a little more center to this. And uh, okay. um, looking at the camera. Looking at the camera. Uh, you should probably look at Yeah, you. look at the yeah. How's that uh, direction? Okay. Great one. Rolling. Great. So, Paul, um, how are we going to know when our country has made some meaningful progress or perhaps succeeded in making education more equitable for students of all backgrounds? And um, are there a couple of data points that you look at, or proxies, uh, to, you know, that you look at? I think there are lots of data points that we can look at um, along the way to measure whether whether kids are succeeding, whether our reforms are working, everything from um, test scores to attendance to um, uh, high school graduation, matriculation in college. Uh, but I think I, I tend to feel like the more important um, data points are the more uh, the further downstream ones, like you know college graduation rates. Uh, these are. This is, this is a challenge for people who want to measure whether a reform is working right away. Uh, if we say that, you know, yeah, you can tell if your pre-K reform is working, depending on how many of those kids graduate from college. Um, but I think, I think as an intellectual exercise, it's useful to think about those, those long-term uh, uh, measures. Because otherwise, I think we, we really focus too much on the short-term ones. We say, like, yep, this, this intervention uh, moved test scores by this many percentage points on this day, um, and so that must mean it works. Whereas really what we care about are those long-term goals. Um, so I think the more that we can think about those as our data points, the better. Great. And just to clarify, your long-term data points there, you offered a couple of examples, one of them being college completion or graduation rate? Is that one? Yeah, I mean, to me, that's the big one. I mean, so my, my next book after this one is about college uh, and higher education. Uh, and the data is really clear that, that there is this huge and growing gap now between uh, how well high income and how likely high income and low income kids are to graduate with a BA. Uh, and that gap, I think, is, is, has been under addressed in education and education reform. And it is huge in terms of the, the future equity in our society. Uh, and so to me, that's the big one. If we want to try to figure out if, if, if an educational intervention is working, looking at, at the college graduation rates for those kids, um, that's a great place to start. Great. Do you think college is a good, it will be a long-term predictor? Do you think as people start reevaluating college, um, will that still be, like, if you get a low-income student to college and beyond, is that still a measure of them being successful in life? I mean, I, I think once we get to that point, we're still going to have to think a lot about what college is and who it's for and, and, and why it's there. Um, but I think, you know, the fact that, that, the, that not only are the gaps not shrinking in terms of college attainment for low-income and high-income kids, but they are actually growing. Um, and at the same time that, you know, the statistics 
economists can explain how a college degree is more valuable than ever. Having a BA means more in today's economy than it did in the past. This is a recipe for you know, serious social divisions in the future. So um, I do think you know, down the road it's worth sort of tweaking and thinking about like which college degree is most valuable for which kids. But on the whole, I would, I would sort of put that conversation aside and say what can we do to just narrow that gap or start to narrow that gap, that there are way too many low-income kids who want to get a college degree um, and have the capacity to get a college degree and are not getting a college degree. And so solving that problem first, I think, is going to be the most important goal. Great. Great. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much. A huge thanks to Paul Tuff for chatting with us. That's actually the last of our interviews from the New School Venture Fund Conference. And if you want to hear the others with the likes of Enid Ray and Jesse Woolley Wilson, check out our last few podcast episodes. One more thing, listeners. We want to get to know you better. And we want to know if you'd take a three-question survey for us. You might win an Amazon gift card worth $100. Go to bit.ly slash air. It's just the name of this podcast. B-I-T dot ly slash edsurge on air all one word we'd appreciate it so much and if you fill it out we might actually answer one of your questions well on the air man a hundred dollars free money people you could win free money and yeah okay that seems like a little bit of an oxymoron free and money but it's still pretty cool and with that i'm mary joe matta and i'm blake montgomery and we'll see you next week This is the Ed Surge Podcast.